On today's episode of the Savage Tutor podcast, I sat down with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Christian Gibbs. Christian has had a long, successful career as a musician, from the guitarist in the 80s band Modern English to his career as a solo artist. Christian talked about the creative process, what goes into writing a hit song, how to balance artistic expression with commercial success, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Christian, thanks for coming on today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So take me all the way back. What was the the impetus or the spark for you getting into the music industry? I started at a young age. My dad played classical guitar. My mom played piano. And I just, you know, kind of followed suit. And around 18, I just got a case of Wanderlust. And I figured, you know, playing music, going to like a bigger city, getting out of San Diego might be the, you know, the way to enter the the music arena, I guess, as you would say. So I moved to London. So what was the original? I mean, obviously your family was were musicians, but what was the thing that excited you about music in the first place? I kind of like how you could be in charge with as a musician, especially as a songwriter, like you're kind of in control as opposed to like someone who is a performer and, and plays other people's songs. Like I, I was always a songwriter from the beginning just because it was a great means of expression, how to get whatever you're going through, get it out on paper. It was a good catharsis. It was just good to express oneself, you know, and like other people might turn to painting or writing. And, you know, I was also a big reader. So I, I, just, I was really fascinated with words and music and music's kind of like math in a way. And just like, Oh, how can I fit these chords together and like throw these words on top? So that was the big inspiration for me. Yeah. It's interesting. I know starting writing and i guess i'll i'll say yeah I'm, as a writer now it's it's something that really is i didn't think i really enjoy the process and enjoy so many of the benefits of yeah it being cathartic and just as a way uh, to express yourself which is really fun and really it's engaging just brings so much richness and meaning to my life but i'm curious as a songwriter it's it's a vulnerable process right of, of writing songs or even writing books or whatever kind of content you create like where did that first spark in terms of becoming a songwriter like how did you actually learn the craft well, obviously, like I had to learn how to play other people's songs first, but at an early age, like I think 15, I wrote my first song called The End of Fear, you know, because <laughs> I was just like, you know, when you get a little older, you're, you have some questions about life and where we where you come from. And I was just really into like songwriters like Bob Dylan and Neil Young, and and I just gravitated towards that and wanting to be like them. And I, I also like the independence of being a singer songwriter as opposed to a band. But I did have the buffer of playing with a band at first because it it, be, it it was kind of a shield to that vulnerability. What were some of the early inspirations in terms of the topics you wrote about when you said 15 years old, I was imagining just your, your first heartbreak or something, but you talked about something different, the end of fear, but what it really inspired some of your early songs? I was in a band with all these guys from from high school in San Diego. And at first, the lyrics weren't very heavy. They were kind of, we were kind of like a 60s psychedelic wannabe band, you know, called The Cry. The lyrics for me just kind of glued the music together. And there's another co-writer there. Um, as I started writing solo, I wrote a lot about loss, you know, because as at an early age, I lost my mom, you know, to suicide. So, I would kind of write from the get-go like some about some deep topics, you know what I mean? 
like trying to come to terms with that. You know what I mean? I think I gravitated towards like these heavy romantic relationships at an early age. Like, I think I was like deeply in love with my, this girl, like in sixth grade and she broke my heart. And so I'd write songs about that, but because I lost my mom at a young age, I think I gravitated when I got in a relationship with a, a girl, even in, like in seventh grade or eighth grade, I was just like, I went all in, you know what I mean? So if that was unrequited or if it didn't work out, I would write a lot of songs about that. Yeah. I'm just curious. I think people think about just, you know, how a song comes to fruition or how it gets written and that there's like this spark of genius. I'm curious what that process is like, just both when you were first becoming a songwriter and even now is like, how do you capture or, or spark those creative ideas and how do you harness that in a song? Cause it's obviously it's a, a finite length typically in terms of a song. Yeah. I mean, I think when I'm writing a song, it's usually like I'm playing guitar, I'm relaxing. Sometimes I'm traveling or you're just in your guitar and you're at a parking spot by the beach somewhere. And then you'll just be kind of playing. It's like playing guitar for me, especially acoustic is very meditative. So like I'll just jam on, on some, some riff for a while. And then, and then that kind of sparks it. Then it, it, you get into this zone and then you're like, oh man, at first I, I actually resist writing lyrics at first. I actually sit with the song itself for a long time before I start writing lyrics. Like the, the lyrics come later for me because once the lyrics come, then you're kind of making decisions and you know that the journey is going to be ended once, once you finish the lyrics, you know what I mean? With the song. And I kind of like that elasticity when the song's not finished. Cause it's like this extended meditation in a way, you know what I mean? But then you do get excited when the lyrics do come and you're like, at first they might not make sense. And then you realize what they're, what the song is going to be about. And usually I get inspired by that. Like, you know, finishing it, obviously rhyming things. And sometimes the lyrics are like glue and they just kind of finish the arrangement of the song. And sometimes the lyrics are more profound. Yeah, I would have thought that it was more the lyrics would guide the song and then you'd create the, you know, the harmonies and the choruses. I'm going to stumble and obviously not a musician (laughs) using the wrong words here. But I would thought the lyrics and the theme would actually drive the song versus the other way around. Is, Is that typically the case with most musicians in terms of how they go about writing music? I don't know. I mean, I I think a lot of people do, you know, write the lyrics first. I personally, like I said, I, I'm more of the music first kind of person. You know what I mean? That said, like I'll have stuff in a journal. I don't really journal anymore, but when I was young and had more epiphanies, as I get older, there's less epiphanies in my life. But you know, when you're all excited to be young and you're like, Oh my God, I figured out the, the answer to this life problem and you're writing in your journal, like I would co-opt stuff from my journal sometimes. I'm like, oh, this would make a nice song. Or you're writing in your journal and you're like, oh, I'm going to start rhyming instead of just, you know, free form here. And then you can, uh, I'll adapt that into a song. But most of the time, like I'll even sing phonetically, like I'll even sing on stage and I have like some key words, like maybe I'll have the chorus, but I have no idea what the verse is, but I know rhythmically and phonetically what the verse is. And I'll literally sing on stage, like trying a new song out, even today, out having the song written. And sometimes people are like, oh, I really love your lyrics. And I, I, I don't want to break it to them that I wasn't really singing anything. you know. So obviously, before I record the record, I, I finish the lyrics. But I like an extended experimentation, personally, if, when you're writing music, you know, and just trying new things. And Bob Dylan said, you know, the, the, the first version is always the best one. I should try to get back to that. That's interesting. It's 
pretty uh, vulnerable out there on stage, actually almost co-creating your your songs, your lyrics with the audience and walking through that process of, of how the audience is involved with guiding, or maybe they don't guide it at all, but in terms of how that, how that song eventually unfolds. Yeah, like uh, we just played Adams Avenue Street Fair, which is down, you know, Adams Avenue area, San Diego, obviously. And I was debating, should I do this song? Like I have the song, um, I don't care what the doctor says. It's it's just kind of like a song about authority or people telling you, you can't do this, but you're like, you know what? I'm going to do it anyways. It's a little rebellious. My youngest kid really, sometimes he'll just break out and sing one of my songs. And he's like, not the most musical of the two kids. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this song, even though I don't have all the lyrics finished. And I have like one verse and the chorus and I just broke it out and, you do feel a little vulnerable on stage. Like, is someone going to know that I'm kind of like singing phonetically or kind of doing more oohs and ahs than I should be? And literally the sound guy after the show is like, hey, man, I really like that song. I don't care what the doctor says. You know, that one you did in falsetto. And that just goes to show me that, you know, it's, it's worth it to just take a leap. Obviously, if I think if I was playing Madison Square Garden, I'd probably not do that song. I'd probably have the lyrics written, but... <laughs> So take me through just the the arc of your career journey. You talked about moving from San Diego to London, which is obviously a pretty big jump for most people, especially at a coming of age moment at 18. But like, what was the the big opportunity that really helped you jump forward in your music career? Yeah, I, w- I was like a suburban kid from you know San Diego. And I, I was a little bit restless. Like, do I, okay, do I finish college? Or, you know, I was didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I got offered a transfer program to go to London and I didn't think my dad at the time would, would pay for it. And he did to my surprise. So I'm like, this is great. This is my key out of suburbia. I got, I was in London. I did the, the school transfer program for three months. And then I, I started busking on the subways, you know, and I'd, I'd be busking, I guess is, is like, like playing outdoors, you know, for money, putting a hat out. And then I would literally get chased by clowns, you know, and miming clowns, like, off the subway because I guess I was in their area and I had no idea of the rules of the road. It's a very territorial situation. So that was pretty funny. And then I just started playing some night spots and some pubs. And, you know, when I was in college, I was, I would play shows, some pubs and, and I was really like, listen, I can't go back to San Diego. So someone said, Hey, do you want to live with me in my apartment? You could play in my band. One thing led to another. Then I started living in a squat, which is basically you don't pay for rent. I met up with some friends and then I end up auditioning for uh modern English, which is like a one, you know, they're, they're, they have that song on the radio that does pretty good. And, and that kind of led me to go on tour with them, which was kind of kickstarted my music career a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. I'd say uh, a song kind of people know, I'd say it's a pretty iconic song from the, this is the eighties, but uh, <laughs> I'd be curious in terms of just, you mentioned just touring on the band and obviously that band obviously had an incredible amount of success is I think it's interesting from a performer perspective, what it's like when you're performing on stage and dealing with failure and mistakes. But what was it like when you had that first big opportunity where you had just to, you know, imagine an incredible sized audience in front of you. Now you have to perform on the spot with really no safety net. First of all, the, the audition process took forever. So I, I was living in a squat, I was doing my own music. And then I was like, tired of selling clothes in Camden market, you know, and I was like, I really need to make some more money. So I auditioned the ad. Then I went to the audition, which is a funny story in itself. I'll I'll tell you on another podcast, but 
they were kind of making fun of me, the modern English guys, because I brought all my guitars, but it was just an interview, but I had no idea. And they're like, all right, mate, you could just leave now. Basically telling me like, you know, you brought your guitars, you're, you're kind of a dork. You didn't even know it was just an interview. But I was like, hey, man, I'm here. I'm going to have a beer while I'm here, right? And they, I think they were taken aback by that, like that I was just didn't leave the meeting. And then, um, which ended up getting me an audition. Once I got the job, they were very like, I, I thought I was home free. And then I went to the rehearsal and I didn't learn the songs good enough. And the singer was like, hey, man, we're a professional band. Like, you better go home and learn the songs better or we're giving you a chance. If you don't do it, you're out. And that kind of just like set me on fire. And I went home and I'm like, I was all nervous. And I learned the songs backwards and forwards. And then when we did the first show, you know, I was really nervous. I think I made a couple mistakes. I think it was in Pennsylvania somewhere, Harrisburg. It was a warm-up show. And I was really grateful that we had that warm-up show because then we did a proper show in front of like 2,000 people. And that was my first, as a 21-year-old kid, it was really nervous, but uh, I got through it. And then it felt great once you got over that hump. Did you have a sense at that point that you'd made it? Because I think that's common to even entrepreneurs as well as i mean i don't know if people necessarily acknowledge the their successes but did you have any sense of that you'd, you'd made it at that point or was this just another just step forward in your life and your career i think i was in a state of perpetual anxiety until i got like maybe two weeks of shows under my belt i was like i'm gonna get fired tomorrow i'm gonna get fired tomorrow like this is i used to watch this band on mtv and now i'm playing with them and they don't like me that much or that you know they actually liked the rhythm guitar player better. He was he was a, a new recruit as well. And he got on better socially at first. But then I earned my wings, I guess. And then after a couple of weeks, I, then I felt like I could relax a little bit. But yeah, I, I didn't feel like, oh, I've made it now. I was like, I still have to like excel at this job. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about, you know, what people think about in the business context of imposter syndrome. So it sounds like almost some sense of, you know, imposter syndrome it's within the context of being in a band. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because you're, you're by yourself, you know, you don't have like a manager with you or someone being like, Hey, this is how you should react to this. Or this is how you go on live television. Like once you do some, you do some shows Like we played New York, we played uh, some big shows with, I think we met Laurie Anderson backstage, you know, um, I didn't even know who half these people were back then. I was like 20 or 21. I was like, oh, everyone's like, oh, where are you going to meet Laurie Anderson? I'm like, I don't really know who that is, and, but okay. And we would do photo shoots. And right when you got over, you know, playing, we're like, okay, we're doing a, a show in front of a thousand people. Then, okay, now we're doing a show um, in front of two or 3,000 people. And then you'd be like, okay, great. I got through that. I could relax. And then they're like, okay, now we're going to go on live television and play, you know, one of those television shows. And you, that was a new experience too. And then it gives you something totally new to be nervous about. But, you know, you, you overcome each milestone and then you, with each one, you have a little bit more experience and you feel a little bit more relaxed afterwards. Anything that you would do to prepare yourself to succeed in those, you talk about a state of perpetual, you know, anxiety about upcoming performances. Like how do you actually get yourself prepared to, to deliver when it counts? You know, the, the most rehearsed you are is, is the best. Like I, there was another situation where I, I was touring in Japan with another band and the lead guitar I was playing rhythm guitar for that band and the, the lead guitarist had a medical emergency and I had to learn all his parts in my Japanese hotel room in like a day or something like we found out that day 
And I just wrote cheat sheets, you know, like notes that I would put in front of the monitor, the monitors, you know, to help me out. And I just practiced over and over and over. And just, I think practice makes perfect, you know, like, especially with music, because then it allows you to improvise. You know, if you know, if you know it backwards and forwards, then you could, you can go on a leap when you're actually performing like, okay, I'm going to try a slightly different solo here. And, and then it gives you peace of mind. So that's how I would overcome it. I'm curious, you know, we're talking about this before putting yourself out there as a performer, as a songwriter. And I think about it as whenever I put content out in the world or a book, you know, there's this fear of judgment and criticism is what's that been like for you? And how do you handle some of that criticism, some of that judgment or, or fear of judgment when you're either going to perform or to put out new songs or new music or to start new bands and just different things in your creative career? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, like being a solo artist, I got the last few records I put out have been under my name, you know, or, or C Gibbs, a variation of my name. And there's always a question, okay, do, do I put my picture on the cover or I don't? Sometimes I'll be arty and not put my picture on the cover because you're less vulnerable, you know, and you're like, you're kind of like, look how modest I am. I'm not putting my picture on the cover. And then sometimes most marketing people are like, hey, man, you should put your picture on the album, you know. And then how, how the music's perceived by others I, I try not to think about that um, as much anymore. You know, it, sometimes you'll get a review and it'll be like, I can't stand that guy's voice or something. But then that's like one review and, and nine other reviews are like, this is a great record. We love it. Blah, blah, blah. It has a lot of variety. There's always going to be that one person that just doesn't like it. It's not their cup of tea, you know, and you can't control who's going to review your record. And I think with music, especially, you just got to, you can't listen to the, managers you can't listen to the record people you, i don't have any record people now because i i like in this world you know i self-release but when i was on atlantic and younger i probably made the mistake too much to listen to all those people and then then the music the aesthetic comes out a little convoluted you know so i think it's important just to make your music and stay focused on what pleases you as a musician and a songwriter that's really hard to do i know just you talk about reviews and uh, i was just you know, paralyzed thinking about those one star Amazon reviews. And it was almost a relief actually when I got it. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, I've taken the arrow. Can okay, I move on? You mentioned something interesting in terms of just doing what, what feels right to you and, and tuning out those voices, but that's, that's hard. I mean, it's, it's, how do you get to a place where you put the music in your situation out into the world that you want to put in and, and tune out the voices, tune out the people working for large record companies like, uh, like Atlantic and just even just critics and other musicians, like how do you get to a place where you can actually write and create and, and ultimately publish the music that you want to do? I mean, I think you have to have a bit of, a bit of confidence, you know? So like, especially with music, I mean, music's kind of a narcissistic art form in a way. I mean, or even, even if you have the gumption to like pursue music, you have to be, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm narcissistic, but I think there's a little bit of that required. Like, there's a little bit of arrogance re required, a little bit of being naive, you know, because a lot of it's luck in the music business, a little bit of just self-confidence. And because you, you know, like the odds of having any kind of success in the music business are kind of stacked against you. So you have to also have be super passionate and just move forward and not really worry about what those people say. As I get older, it's easier for me to say that in hindsight. Because I wasn't always that way before. Yeah, I think about just friends and 
you know, going back to high school reunions, people just get a little bit maybe more, I don't know, odd over time. I guess I think there's, they're probably just more who they truly want to be versus in high school, everyone's, most people are conforming. And as we get older, we see it gets almost easier to stay true to yourself in later years, but it's, it's tough, especially in those earlier years, for sure. Yeah. When, when I was on Atlantic, when we were making my record, uh, it was my first time with a big record producer and they were throwing a lot of money at the record, like six figures, like more money I've ever seen. We're recording at A&M and, and I made some bad decisions, you know, that now when I look back on it, you know, you could always, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You could always like, well, if I didn't use a different drummer, my record would have been better if I, I just stuck to my guns. But, you know, you have the record producer saying, you know, we think you should change the drummer. And, and like, I remember seeing these, like these little falsetto backing vocals, like, on this one song and then the producer flew it in everywhere, you know? So because he thought it was more hit material or poppy and I couldn't stand it, you know? And I called Atlantic. I'm like, I want to take these background vocals out of the mix. You know what I mean? And remix it. And they're like, well, that's going to cost you $7,000 of your own money to do that. And I think they did an alternative mix, but they kept it on the record. And to this day, I was like, uh, I'm like, man, I just should, I should have spent the seven grand, you know? and took those backing vocals out. I don't know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easy to want to stick to your guns, but whether you do stick to your guns is, is another question. Yeah. I, mean, I know it definitely feels better in the end when you do what actually felt right to you for sure. So I know for me, like publishing my first book, it just allowed me to really be the most authentic version of myself and write in the style that I wanted to write and put the book out in the world that I wanted to publish and less about what other people wanted. Of course, I'm writing for an audience. So it's not totally true, but I want to do something that actually felt right to me. And I would rather just live with those outcomes, whatever they may be versus doing something that doesn't feel exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I might've, if I took other suggestions, like in your case with your book, you probably had people suggesting, Hey, you should like, you know, do this or do that. But, um, and who knows, maybe if I took, some suggestions down the road, like, you know, stick to one genre. You kind of genre hop too much. You got to make a record that's just more focused. You know, who knows? Maybe I would have sold like a hundred million records or something, but whether you could sleep at night is another story. You know, like I like aesthetically making the music that, that you're passionate about, you know, and, and being the true version of yourself, like you mentioned. I'm curious related to that. I mean, how do you balance the, staying true to yourself as an artist with the reality of the commercial aspects of the music business. That's hard. I mean, I really admire those bands that can get away with it, but there's like a handful of bands that have the perfect career, right? Where they're doing like the music they want to do and they're not making sacrifices, you know, to their artistic vision. I think you got to be able to be prepared to have some slow periods and like, like I'm just going to, focus on this record and make it the way I want to make I, like I've, I've done records that were instrumental and I told I've used different band names just for fun. Cause I'm like literally by changing the band name and doing a different genre completely, like just excites me. You know what I mean? It makes me more excited whether it's a good marketing commercial decision. It might, it might not be, it makes me more, it's, it keeps me more passionate about music rather than just doing the same thing over and over. And sometimes you have to take that show where you're playing a party and, and like for a liquor launch and it pays a little bit more money, but it might not be as cool as the show at the club, you know, that's a little more rock and roll, I guess. You know what I mean? 
so those are some commercial sacrifices you make, you know, because you, you, you need to keep your band going. You need to keep paying people. So there might be like a, a new launch for some kind of, you know, liquor product. And you're like, okay, I'll do that if I could pay everyone and keep them employed for a little while. So it's a fine line to walk. I think the same is true for, for brands, for companies that can extend into new hot categories or things that are trending and so forth. And it's, it's like, how do you stay true to who you are? I mean, as you mentioned, musicians, you said a handful that really stayed true to the craft and were commercially successful. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I can think of so many that seem to be authentic and then they went off the rails a little bit and I imagine achieved incredible commercial success, but it's like, how do you avoid that temptation, you know, while being true, you know, no judgment. Some people just, yeah, they want to get the commercial success and, and get paid for their, their work. But just, you know, it's also, it is a very fine line for people to walk. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some musicians aesthetic is just, you know, success. So like to them, they, they're probably not feeling like they're sacrificing anything because they're like, I'm making a great pop song and this is awesome. And I have nothing against great pop songs, but there's like artists like David Bowie and like Tom Waits, like Elliot Smith. Like, I think these are all artists that, that haven't, that I really admire a lot. And Neil Young, you know, like I don't like all of his records, but I remember he did a record called Ark maybe. It was like he got sued by his record company for making an uncommercial record by his own label. <laughs> and then he was like, this is my expression. But he was singing through a vocoder and he had a kid with multiple sclerosis. And so later on, he didn't say it right away, but later on, like 15 years later, he said, listen, I made that record because I was trying to emulate what it might be like my son who can't talk to express himself. So that was that was his artistic vision at the time. I think music has to be healing in a way too. It can't just be about, or any kind of art, you know what I mean? I mean, it probably, you probably got immense gratification off from writing a book, right? Like I can only imagine like music for me, I just feel better. It's just my soul feels better after I do it for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just, it's hearing from a few people just, Hey, this, this was really meaningful for me. You know, one person mentioned, Hey, this, I carried the book along with me and it allowed me to transition out of one career and into another. I was inspired by things. And probably the most meaningful is in my dad talking about pushing himself out of his comfort zone. That's one of the chapters and principles in the book. And that was something that was so cool for me personally. That's not a commercial validation at all, but just like to someone who's given so much to me in my life that that like had an incredible amount of meaning to me because here's someone who's 79 years old, incredibly accomplished and how he learned something from what I created. So that, that was like, I love you, dad. That was a pretty awesome moment for me, for sure. Yeah, sometimes I'm I'm more excited when my kids, like, because they're kind of hard to impress, you know? Like, it's not easily, especially as their dad, I can't really impress them very much. Like, I try to, like, hey, like, if we hear a song on the radio, I'll say, yeah, I met that singer once, you know, or like, you know, I played in a band with that person or something. And they're like, yeah, whatever. But, like, to me, the biggest compliment is, like, when they'll, they'll like, just be humming and they're, they're humming one of my songs. Or my, my other kid, will he learned a riff of, of one of my songs the other day and, like, plays it just like I play it. And that's, like, the biggest compliment more than someone buying, like, 20,000 records, which, you know, would be nice if someone bought 20,000 records, too. But, yeah, it's, it's those things that are that just feel good, you know, from other people appreciating your art. So something we talked about before, I think it's interesting is, is you mentioned just people thinking of just musicians as artists, but not really as entrepreneurs. Can you talk to me a little bit about just 
how your career is unfolded and how it's really how music really is entrepreneurship? So as I like started self-releasing more, especially post Atlantic Records, because um, I was signed to Atlantic Records for a while and had a publishing deal with BMG. As I started self-releasing and and I, I released records before that too, like four records before Atlantic, three with the band Morning Glories and one solo, which got me my Atlantic deal. But as I started a tour and get band members and self-release my own records or, or put them on small labels. Like I had to learn how to do Photoshop. I learned how to do Illustrator. I had to learn how to do Excel spreadsheets. You know, I was mostly working in the restaurant industry or had a, a man of the van moving people in New York City to get by. And so I didn't really, I wasn't really in an office environment where I had to learn, you know, even Microsoft Word. But, you know, now I'm doing Photoshop, Illustrator, making my own album covers, photography. And I just realized, wow, you know, like, like marketing, you have to market yourself, you have to promote yourself, you have to do when you're self-releasing, there's there's just so many facets of you, you know recording software. Now I started saving money because I started recording. I'm like, wait a minute, I could save tons of money if I just buy some recording equipment and record my own music. So now I'm now I'm using computers, you know, constantly for everything. When before I couldn't even type. So I think that led me down to, you know, the the more you could do on your own, the more freedom I had. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have to pay a graphic artist to come up with all these comps. I could come up with the comps and then I at the very end of the eleventh hour I could have them finish it and make it really tight and look good. But plus it's just liberating for me. I like I like being in control a lot, you know, and I think it's good to be able to delegate too. Yeah, I was curious in terms of how do you learn and grow and and peek around the corner for what's next. Obviously music's changed just even from analog to digital in your career is like how do you continue to to learn and to grow and to get better at your craft? You know, like we're having to use a lot more samples now. And I, like I discovered Logic, which is this recording software a long time ago. And it's just very liberating. I, I started writing for some musicals, like being a, a composer. So I just finished a musical where I wrote 25 songs. And you have to learn MIDI. I, I knew MIDI before, but learning all the, these different software applications just helps you to be a more rounded musician, you know? Lately, I started teaching and as well, you know, music in a different kind of medium, which is nice too. Yeah, definitely. Teaching forces you like a different level of expertise and knowledge. You know, obviously, you're an expert in terms of playing guitar and singing and songwriting, but just actually being able to translate that to somebody else who isn't that expert. That's a real, that's real art and real skill as well. It's kind of interesting because I'm teaching songwriting, but in a therapeutic kind of environment which is nice, you know, and I, I never set out to do this. It just kind of fell in my lap from moving back to California. It's really gratifying, you know, like, and I kind of write the songs with the clients, you know, so I work in a lot of rehabs and some places it's there people have to have some mentally ill challenges like schizophrenics. I work with pe- people with eating disorders, you know, so that, that's been really gratifying to use music in a healing way that way too. Yeah, you mentioned just a while ago on this conversation, just in terms of healing, but you know, how do people actually engage with the music and just like, what are some of the you know, things you see in terms of how they're benefiting, whether they have an eating disorder or other illnesses like schizophrenia? Yeah, well, it's very organized. So I, I work with this uh, company called Rock to Recovery and I, I didn't start it. You know, it was, it was started by Wes Gear. He's the guy that came up with the business model and I'm just a mere cog in the wheel. 
worker among workers, I guess, as you would say. So he gave me this great opportunity um, along with a lot of other people. And so we'll just go in to these facilities and, and okay, in an hour, we're going to write a song and we're going to record it and we're going to put it up on SoundCloud. And a lot of them are, are people, you know, trying to come off, you know, heavy drugs, like, you know, a lot of different drugs, alcohol. And then you actually write the song with them, which is nice. And it's, it's great to see the lights come on. And sometimes you'll go into the room and everyone's grumpy and they're kind of a, they're not even happy to see you. Right. But by the end, everyone's like in a good mood, you've raised their levels of oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine in a, in an organic way, rather than them getting that through maladaptive behavior, like doing bad drugs or something, you know? So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's really gratifying. And I never thought it would be so gratifying, but I'm really enjoying that lately. What an unexpected twist in your career in terms of going from singing and songwriting and playing guitar to actually going back and actually giving back to people directly. Obviously, you did through music and bringing joy and allowing people to process their emotions through your songs. But just what a what a neat and powerful example of of giving back to to uh, you know some very needy people who need the the help for sure. Yeah, it's great. I mean, music's always been like a roller coaster as far as a a vocation. You know, what I mean, like, like you have sometimes you'll make like a you'll have a windfall and make a, a, a big ton of money and that you could live on for three years. Or let's say you get your song licensed in a movie or a commercial or something. But a lot of it's, you don't really know when the next paycheck's coming, you know? So I've always done other kinds of work, you know, when I was on Atlantic and PMG and I, I played on Broadway too, like obviously I didn't have to have other jobs. So I, but even when I was on Broadway, I did another business because I would see all the plays close. Back to your question, like, did you feel like you could relax after you had that, you know, milestone? Um, my first two weeks on Broadway, I was like, I'm, I'm going to stop doing my other job. This is great. I'm on Broadway. I'm in the musicians union. I'm making great money, triple scale because I played three instruments. And then I just saw all the plays close except for the Lion King and a couple others, you know. And then I was like, I got to keep this business going on the side. So, and the job I have now, it's with music as opposed to like an, a means to an end. Even though it's not total self-expression, it's very gratifying for the soul. Well, Christian, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you sharing your story and your journey and um, teaching me personally so much about music and just the process of of creativity and songwriting. But uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Where can people go to download your music, just to check out some of the work that you've done? So yeah, the best place is probably um, my Instagram is C-E-E-G-I-B-B-S, C Gibbs with two E's. But the name is C period Gibbs and my website is www.cgibbsreview.com. All right. Appreciate that. Well, thanks so much, Christian. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Been great to be here. Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. As a special bonus, I wanted to include one of Christian's latest songs. Enjoy. Take a load of freight through a southern state. If my every day could only be the sea, from the fossil walls to the capitals, past of one I'm called. We're in diving The sparrow's bow
Sing far. 